Welcome to Bible Worm. We're on hiatus until September 2021, but this summer we're replaying our 2020 series on the Hebrew Festival Scrolls. This week, enjoy our episode on Ruth 2 and 4 from July 12, 2020. Happy listening, and see you in September. Bible Worm, Bible Worm, reading the Bible with Bible Worm. Hello and welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. I'm joined by my good friend and colleague, Dr. Amy Robertson, biblical scholar and director of lifelong learning at Congregation Or Chadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week we continue our summer series on the forgotten books of the Bible with a look at the book of Ruth, chapters 2, 1 to 20, and 4, 9 to 17. We look at the way the book of Ruth challenges the anti-immigrant sentiment in the time of Ezra Nehemiah and in our own day. We discuss how the book lifts up the foundational contributions of Ruth the Moabite, whose persistence saves the family line of King David, without whom ancient Israel would never have been great in the first place. We think about how the book tries to counter anti-immigrant sentiment by depicting Ruth as hardworking, culturally astute, and dedicated to her Israelite mother-in-law, Naomi. We also wonder what damage such rhetoric might do to Ruth, but that's a conversation for next week. In the meantime, thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy, how are you this week? I am doing well. This week, we find ourselves in the book of Ruth for the first of two discussions of Ruth. Um, we did do, uh, as, you, as you remember, no doubt, uh, we did do a discussion <laughs> of Ruth chapter one. One of our first episodes is episode six from last October. We talked about episode one. That was October 2019 was in the before times. We can't remember anything. That we were happened. still in LDR at that point. We were, yeah. and we were not living through a pandemic, and yeah, it was a different time, but it's a good episode, and if you have not listened to it, you should. I mean, when have we done a not a good episode, though, honestly? <laughs> <laughs> it's been at least seven days. <laughs> okay. Oh, good times. All right, Amy, so we're starting up today in Ruth chapter two. So why don't you, what do we need to know just as we approach the book of Ruth? What kind of stuff do we need to know to get ready to read? Well, here are a couple things that I would want to know coming into this this text. The book of Ruth is a short story, really. Mm. The book is set in the time of Judges. Yeah. But as with many texts, it is probably not written during that time. There are two theories, I would say, two dominant theories of when, when this text may have been written. One, the sort of earlier theory is that it was sometime between the reign of King David and the fall of the Northern Kingdom. Mm-hmm. And then there's a theory that it was written around the time of returning from exile, around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, maybe 500 BCE or so. And you have a, a preference between those two, yeah? I do. And it's it's not really a preference of, you know, I would argue out all the details about when it was probably written, but more... I find it very compelling to read it against the background of Ezra and Nehemiah. Mm-hmm. You know, Ezra and Nehemiah were kind of famously troubled about the problem of intermarriage between Jews and non-Jews. Yeah. And so you find in Ezra chapter 9 and 10, the people are saying, we got sent into exile. 
And mm-hmm. now we're back and we're trying to reestablish, but like, we don't want to get sent into exile again. So what do we do? And in Ezra chapter nine, they say, hey, uh, we're starting to intermarry again. And they name all these people groups of which Ruth's people, the Moabites is one of the groups. We're intermarrying with them. We got to stop it. Mm-hmm. And so they make an agreement to send away all their foreign wives. So for me, when you read the book of Ruth, which is about a Moabite, against the background of this kind of anti-immigrant movement, there's a really rich kind of um, way of thinking about the way the book of Ruth engages with that anti-immigrant sentiment in, in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. And then I just want to say maybe one other thing by way of general introduction, and then you might have some more you yeah. want to add to This book is traditionally read on Shavuot in the Jewish community. There are a couple of different, there's a connection to the harvest that is at that time of year. And also a connection to the story that the Jews received the Torah at Sinai on Shavuot. Yeah. Which then connects to the idea of Ruth as the ideal convert, the sort of model Mm. of someone who, who chooses to join the Jewish community and truly throws their lot in with the Jewish community. Yeah. And the community's welcome and embrace of those people. So one of the things you said there that I think is interesting is that you were talking about uh, Shavuot sort of focuses on the welcome of the foreigner into Israel. And I just wanted to say the way that we've kind of set up our, the set of texts for these two podcasts is really thinking about this week, thinking about welcome mostly, I think. And then next week, we're going to come back and sort of trouble the welcome a little bit and say, like, is this book really as welcoming as we might, might like to read it? So we're going to pick up today in Ruth chapter 2, which is set in Bethlehem in Israel. But before that, there is a whole chapter that is set in Moab. Mm-hmm. Can you just give us the kind of just a quick, quick plot background, like enough to get us started in Ruth 2? Okay. So in chapter one, this sort of the story starts out with a spotlight on a woman named Naomi, who is from Bethlehem, who is married and has two sons. And there is a famine in Bethlehem. And so she moves into neighboring Moab. And over time there, her sons marry women in that community. But then tragedy begins to strike for Naomi. Her husband dies. And then both of her sons die. Mm, mm -hmm. So, I mean, this is like not only an indescribably great personal loss, it's a total undoing of her place in the world as a woman who now, you know, she's, she's lost her sons and she's lost her husband. Yeah. So when the famine ends, Naomi decides to return home. Her two daughters-in-law offer to go with her and she... She keeps saying, you shouldn't come with me. You should stay here and you should remarry. Like, go back to your mother's homes and make a nice life for yourself. And she prevails upon one of the daughters-in-law to do that. But Ruth won't go. Ruth says no. Like, I really have, I throw in my lot with you and I will go with you. And she makes a very beautiful speech that we will read next time about that. A piece of that is also, as you were noting, since all the men in the family have died, without any male heirs. This is, in in another sense, related sense, that kind of the end of the family line yeah. for Elimelech and Naomi, they're, they're going to get erased from the people of Israel because there is no heir to carry on the line. Yeah. And then we pick up then in Ruth chapter 2, when they, they're, they're back in, their, in Naomi's homeland and they're trying to figure out basically how do we 
like, how do we survive? And this is where we pick up. Now Naomi had a respected relative, a man of worth, through her husband from the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field so that I may glean among the ears of grain behind someone in whose eyes I might find favor. Naomi replied to her, Go, my daughter. So she went. She arrived and she gleaned in the field behind the harvesters. By chance, it happened to be the portion of the field that belonged to Boaz, who was from the family of Elimelech. Why do you think at the beginning of verse 2, it says Ruth the Moabite? We just had a whole chapter telling us who Ruth is. The marking of Ruth as a Moabite is so fascinating in this text, because in, the, in chapter 1, if you go back and look, the text doesn't actually call her Ruth the Moabite while they're in Moab. It starts to call her Ruth the Moabite when they show up in That's so Israel. interesting. Like to underscore her difference in some way. That's exactly right. So she becomes marked as different when they enter back into the land that is not hers. Mm-hmm. And she's marked not just as a foreigner, but specifically as a Moabite. Mm-hmm. And Moabites and Israel have a very fraught relationship in the biblical text. Uh, <laughs> did you want to give us any background about Moabites? So way back in Genesis, Abraham, you may recall, has like a a cousin, I guess, Lot. Lot moves to Sodom and Gomorrah, which we know has has it has some troubles. Is saved from the disaster that befalls Sodom and Gomorrah with mm-hmm. two of his daughters who wind up in a cave somewhere, like just sort of hunkered down. Yeah. In the cave, his daughters think the whole world has been destroyed. Yeah. That the only people left in the world are them and their father. And their concern is, well, how will our lineage be continued and how will the world be populated? Yeah. So they, in turn, they each take an evening and they got they get their father rip-roaring drunk and sleep with him and become impregnated. Yeah. And so they birth their their father's child and one of those children is the descendant of the moabites the ancestor of the moabites yes one of those children is the ancestor of the moabites yeah and you also find in places like deuteronomy deuteronomy 23 3 says that ammonites and moabites that those two people groups born of that incestuous relationship cannot belong to the lord's assembly not even the 10th generation of such people can belong to the lord's assembly So there seems to be some kind of prohibition, even all the way back in Deuteronomy, about Mm -hmm. Moabites becoming joined to the people of Israel. And so this idea that Naomi would come back to Israel, bringing her Moabite daughter-in-law with her, I think it's meant to be read as kind of a little bit shocking. I mean, I wonder if it's shocking that she went to Moab in the first place. And they just like lived happily among the Moabite people and married, you know, married Moabite people. And it was all fine. But you're right. Once she has to come back into Bethlehem, it does seem shocking. What is she up to in, in verse two? Ruth says, let me go to the field and glean. So gleaning is... A practice that is permitted in Leviticus, expressly permitted more than once, that says when you're harvesting your field, like if the people who are harvesting drop things or like don't get all of it, they're supposed to leave it. Like don't go back and pick up every single thing so that the quote unquote poor and the stranger will be able to come into the field and, and collect what's left. 
It's kind of like the biblical social safety net, right? That yeah. instead of collecting all your produce from your field, you just you leave some kind of on purpose uh, and let that be for the widow, the orphan, and the stranger. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to me that Ruth is the one who comes up with this plan. It, it's not Naomi who says, hey, there's mm-hmm. this law in the book of Deuteronomy. That's true. <laughs> but she's the one, this Moabite foreigner is the one who knows that in the Israelite law, there's this provision and that she should be able to go and do this. Yeah. So Naomi's role in this moment is just to say, okay, go, go, my daughter. Mm-hmm. And so I've just always been struck by the extent to which Ruth, the foreigner, kind of is driving the bus. Like she's figuring out how are we going to survive? And Naomi right. seems a little incapacitated or something at this moment. Do you do you read it that way? No, I do. I mean, R- Ruth really sort of steps up and says, we need to figure out what we're going to do here. And I'm going to go do it. I also think it's interesting that she asks permission to do it. Like, yeah. she's a grown woman. And she's she's willing to go do this work to sort of support them. But she asks permission and she gets it. Yeah. It just, again, sort of in terms of like introducing the relationships between people, she's yeah. definitely putting herself in the, she, she defers to Naomi. Okay, so now we've got uh, Ruth who has gone off to Boaz's field. She apparently does not know that it's Boaz's field and no one has actually told her that Boaz is a relative, although right. the narrator has told us, but right. no one has told Ruth. Mm-hmm. So then picking up in verse four. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem. He said to the harvesters, may the Lord be with you. And they said to him, may the Lord bless you. Boaz said to his young man, the one who was overseeing the harvesters, to whom does this young woman belong? The young man who was overseeing the harvesters answered, she's a young Moabite woman, the one who returned with Naomi from the territory of Moab. She said, please let me glean so that I might gather up grain from among the bundles behind the harvesters. She has arrived and has been on her feet from the morning until now and has sat down for only a moment. I'll just pause there before we actually see the encounter between Boaz and Ruth, but we, we get this description first from the overseer of the harvesters. Mm-hmm. What do you think of his description and the way he chooses to talk about Ruth there? I think that I think she's a Moabite girl who's from the country of Moab. It's a <laughs> really funny sentence. Like, oh, really? What's important to you here? Yes. Okay. She's, oh, she's gotcha. She's Roger. a Moabite from she's Moab. From, <laughs> she's a Moabite from Moab. Yeah. So she's really, really being marked as a foreigner for sure. Yeah. yeah. She's super foreign. However, to her credit, she has asked very politely to be able to do what she's doing and she's working awfully hard. Yeah. He goes out of his way to point out that she hasn't, she's hardly rested at all. She's been on her feet all day. It seems so, I don't know, like in your face in some way that, you know, this gleaning is an option for folks who are really vulnerable within a society, right? Who are like not sort of plugged into the social structures of the place across generations. Yeah. And so they're really, they're vulnerable. And this is the safety net, as you said earlier. And so Ruth, as a foreigner, like she doesn't have land. She doesn't have, she's also a widow. She doesn't have a husband to care for her. And all of her politeness and sort of going above and beyond to show how, like, how much she appreciates this. And she's sort of taking full advantage of this opportunity. It's very kind of, I don't know, non-threatening to the social structure. 
You know, yeah. like she is very respectful of like, this is the way things are done. And I'm going to fit myself very carefully into those places and check in with people all along the way. No, I think that's exactly right. She's being sort of set up by the Texas as kind of model foreigner. And, mm-hmm. you know, the text is a little bit in the background saying like, you might have heard that Moabites are rude or impolite or dangerous. But mm-hmm. let me tell you about Ruth, who is well-behaved, yeah. deferential, polite. And so I th- we'll want to talk about that a little bit today in terms of like, what is this text trying to do? And then we'll definitely want to talk about that again next time in terms mm-hmm. of like, what do we think about? <laughs> like, what do we think about what the text is trying to do to Ruth in that way? Right. Yeah. So now Boaz is actually going to go and interact with Ruth, starting in verse 8. Boaz said to Ruth, Haven't you understood, my daughter? Don't go glean in another field. Don't go anywhere else. Instead, stay here with my young women. Keep your eyes on the field that they are harvesting and go along after them. I've ordered the young men not to assault you. (laughs) How lovely. Like, thank you so much. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I have a little, in my my text, I put a little exclamation point next to that. Like, that didn't even occur to me. What a privileged (laughs) life I have. So, whenever you are thirsty, go to the jugs and drink from what the young men have filled. Then she bowed down, face to the ground, and replied to him, How is it that I've found favor in your eyes that you notice me? I'm an immigrant. Boaz responded to her, Everything that you did for your mother-in-law after your husband's death has been reported fully to me, how you left behind your father, your mother, and the land of your birth, and came to a people you hadn't known beforehand. May the Lord reward you for your deed. May you receive a rich reward from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to seek refuge. She said, May I continue to find favor in your eyes, sir, because you've comforted me and because you've spoken kindly to your female servant, even though I'm not one of your female servants. So we noted that line about telling the young men not to assault her. Is there anything that we need to say about that? Yeah, I mean, to me, it just adds another level of sort of Ruth's vulnerability and her willingness to do everything she can within, you know, given all of that vulnerability. Yeah. It underscores the extent to which, like, they are they are so unequal in this yeah. situation. Because Boaz has wealth and fields, and because he is an Israelite, and because he is a man, and because he has, you know, authority over all these folks who are working in his fields. And it, I just sort of see her almost as, like, <laughs> like on her knees, like, oh, thank you, kind sir. Yeah. Thank you. When really, like, she's working her butt off. Like, she's, yeah. I don't know, I wish, I wish... That it didn't have to be this kind of dynamic. Yeah, that's literally what happens in verse 10, where she bows down, puts her face to the ground, Mm -hmm. and says, how have I found favor in your eyes? I'm an immigrant. Which to me is so, like, that she just names the dynamic that directly, or the text has her name. Like, I don't deserve, like, what she's saying is, I don't deserve any attention from you because I'm an immigrant. So thank you for deigning to take me seriously or something like that. Yeah. There's one detail in here that I find really intriguing. I'm curious what you do with it. In verse 13, she says, May I continue to find favor in your eyes? You've spoken kindly to your female servant. And then she takes it back, even though I'm not one of your female servants. The JPS is, though I am not so much as one of your maidservants. Which to me in that reading seems sort of like, again, making herself as small and unthreatening as possible. Like I'm less than one of your maidservants. I am, you know, but a speck of dirt on the bottom of your shoe kind of thing. Yeah. 
I feel like the, another possibility, I don't know what kinds of relationships were generally possible between a property-owning gentleman such as Boaz and his maidservants, but I don't know if she wants to hold open the possibility of their having a different relationship. I, I love that. I think that's probably, like, to me, that's a really compelling reading of the text is that she's offered this possibility, like, hey, I could be one of your maidservants, but mm-hmm. then she's, like, that's kind of overstepping the bounds of what an immigrant woman ought to have said to him. So mm-hmm. she pulls it back. But I, oh, but I could never be one of those. So she's, in my mind, very kind of cleverly offered the possibility and then reminded him that she's very deferential. And that's like, oh, but yeah. this is like, I'm not making any kind of suggestions here. But she's sort of indicated that she she would be interested in becoming part of the household, maybe. It's really interesting to see her go back and forth as a character between being like really sort of taking the lead and being somewhat forward and yeah. forceful, though not in a bad way, in terms of saying, no, this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. I mean, she tells Naomi, this is what I'm going to do, and is very clear-headed about that. Yeah. And then she's very clear that what she ought to do is go glean in the field. And it's interesting to see her step into this other mode of interacting with people Yeah. when she's talking to Boaz. And she's able to do both simultaneously, like right here, especially. And I mean, yeah. with Naomi, too, to say, like, here's the thing that needs to happen. Yeah, you're right. But at the same time, she's saying, oh, but, but, same I, time she asks. but I'm not running mm-hmm. the show. Like, I'm, I'm deferring to you. And this kind of this interesting, like, to think about the ways in which, like, immigrants or foreigners or people who are minorities in a dominant right. culture. Other have than to do own, that dance. How they yeah. do that dance. Yeah. And she's very, I don't know if she's happy, but she's good at it in terms of. Yeah playing the deferential Moabite who is nonetheless like making making her way in the world. Yeah. So moving on to 14. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, eat some of the bread and dip your piece in the vinegar. She sat alongside the harvesters and he served roasted grain to her. She ate, was satisfied and had leftovers. Then she got up to glean. Boaz ordered his young men, let her glean between the bundles and don't humiliate her. Also, pull out some from the bales for her and leave them behind for her to glean, and don't scold her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed what she had gleaned. It was about an ephah of barley. So some kind of shift has taken place here, I think, in the relationship between Ruth and Boaz, or at least the relationship between Ruth and Boaz's household. How do you read what's happened? Boaz has been generous to her pretty much from the beginning but here i feel like it really starts to go above and beyond Mm -hmm. like he's serving her a meal and he's serving her so much food that she has left over even after she is like eaten to her satisfaction and then he tells his workers not only should you let her glean the edges of the field you should let her glean throughout the field and you should also intentionally drop things for her to be able to pick up to make it a little bit easier for her so like he is invested in this relationship and in sort of caring for Ruth differently. Yeah. And I love what you're noticing about how much she's had to eat and she's sitting with the harvesters. Like she really has kind of become integrated already. Integrated might be a little strong, but like she has moved from being like the Moabite from Moab to being right just barely either just inside or just outside the kind of functioning of the family unit. So the last line of this text is that she has gathered an ephah of barley, which is about five gallons of barley. That is a lot of barley. It seems like a lot of barley. That is a huge amount of barley. 
what would you even do with all that barley? Yeah, so I think this text is trying to like indicate both that like God has, or I don't know if God has done it or not, but the the land is producing a lot. Mm-hmm. But also, like Ruth is really being well taken care of by Boaz. Yeah. Okay, so picking up in verse 18. She picked it up and went into town. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She brought out what she had left over after eating her fill and gave it to her. But her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? May the one who noticed you be blessed. She told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. Naomi replied to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord who hasn't abandoned his faithfulness with the living or with the dead. Naomi said to her, The man is one of our close relatives. He's one of our redeemers. What do you think that means? So in the most sort of, I don't know, general way, I I would think of a redeemer as someone, a man, that can bring you back into society. I am guessing that they are thinking here of Leverite marriage. Yeah. When a man died, a married man died childless, there was a possibility of a thing called a Leverite marriage wherein someone else that he was related to would marry his widow. Mm -hmm. And when they had a child, that child was considered to be the descendant of the man who died. But maybe that's what they're talking about here, that Boaz has a type of relationship to Elimelech that he could have been in the position to enter into a Leverite marriage with the widows of Naomi's sons. I think that's right. So the law of Leverite marriage is in Deuteronomy 25. And I think that could be in the background of this text. That text is actually specific about the dead husband's brother, which doesn't actually apply to Boaz. Yeah, so it doesn't apply. There's no mm-hmm. legal obligation, I think, for Boaz. But nonetheless, he could. And in fact, he ends up performing that function for Elimelech in chapter four, saying, I'm going to declare that my offspring is going to be belong to the family of Elimelech. There's another possibility there, which is there is also a law of land redemption in Leviticus mm-hmm. 25. And in that case, if you fall onto hard times and you have a piece of property, you sell it to one of your redeemers who buys it from you so that you have money and then gives it back to you on the Jubilee year. Mm. And so I think this text is kind of playing around with those two ideas. Boaz is one of these relatives who can both redeem the land, giving Ruth and Naomi money to survive, and also possibly a a mate that would kind of restart the biological line of Elimelech. I wish when Naomi is so happy to see how much food Ruth has brought home, that there was at least a little bit of like, wow, you did a really yeah. good job, Ruth. You should you worked really hard. Yeah. <laughs> like there's no acknowledgement at all that Ruth is like working or took us off here. No, that's right. Naomi is at least outwardly not grateful. She's grateful to Boaz. Yeah. May he be blessed by the Lord, but not grateful to Ruth. That's interesting. Okay, so we're going to skip chapter three, which is maybe the most interesting part of the book of Ruth. Uh, But we're going to talk about it next week. We're going to skip down to chapter four. A lot has happened in this little bit that we skipped. But basically, Ruth has suggested to Boaz that he might want to marry her. And he has taken her up on that offer. And so here he's announcing to the people of Bethlehem 
that he's going to redeem Naomi's land and, and marry Ruth. So starting in verse 9, Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I've bought from the land of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Chilion and Malon. And also Ruth the Moabite, the wife of Malon, I've bought to be my wife, to preserve the dead man's name for his inheritance, so that the name of the dead man might not be cut off from his brothers or from the gate of his hometown. Today you are witnesses. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord grant that the woman who is coming into your household be like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built up the house of Israel. May you be fertile in Ephrathah, and may you preserve a name in Bethlehem. And may your household be like the household of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, through the children that the Lord will give you from this young woman. So in the first part of this text, Boaz announces that he's going to be a redeemer in the two ways that we talked about. First, he's going to redeem Naomi's land. And mm-hmm. secondly, he's going to not only marry Ruth, but also he's going to give the first child that they have to Malon, the son of Elimelech, to carry on his line. So he's going to fulfill both the law of land redemption and the law of leveret marriage. In my mind, that's a really striking because I don't think Boaz was required, especially that second part, the marriage and giving the child. I don't think he was required to do that. It is really striking. He basically is like stepping into the role that Malone would have had. Yeah. If he were alive, you know, yeah, like exactly. just sort of taking his position in society. And at least the first child of their union will be, you know, credited. That's such a weird word. But to to the lineage of Malone. Yeah. And the only thing I can come back to is just sort of the literary sort of parallelism between Ruth and how her loyalty and commitment is so like above and beyond what is expected of her. Yeah. And Boaz is is also. Like they yeah. are they are equals in that yeah. way. I love that. So Ruth has gone ab- above and beyond in terms of her work ethic, her understanding of custom, her deference to And her commitment to Naomi. And her commitment especially to Naomi. Yeah. And so she's raised the bar in a way that Boaz has now kind of has matched. Met. Yeah, 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 yeah. Boaz is calling on the people to witness what he's doing. And I mean, I wonder if there's some risk there. I don't know what you think about that in, you know, this Mo- Ruth the Moabite from Moab. And now Boaz is saying, I'm going to marry her. And through her, I'm going to restore this Israelite line. I don't know whether to read that as kind of a risky move. This Israelite entering into a marriage with this Moabite or, or not. Like if it's risky for Boaz? Yeah. Hmm. I take it from your hmm that maybe you don't think so. Okay. So, so there are some folks in my community who have multiracial households. Yeah. Right? So either the parents are of different races or the parents are, gener- or in my situation, the parents are white and they have adopted children of color and for whatever reason, they live in neighborhoods that are predominantly white and are really concerned for the Mm. well-being of the members of their household who are not white and how, you know, like the potential for violence and this sort of fear that, you know, the white folks in their community might have and how they go out of their way, like way out of their way to make sure that all the folks in the community know this is my child who lives in this neighborhood and this house. Like they have to work so much yeah. harder than than white folks who have white children like 
just to sort of counter the, the, the assumptions that people might have or the racist tendencies that people might yeah. have. And so calling the whole community together to say, like, you are my witnesses. Ruth is my wife. Yeah. To me sort of echoes that that sort of the need to go above and beyond in making sure that your relationship is really well established and known in the community. Yeah. Now, that's really that's really important. And I also wonder, as you were talking, I was wondering if maybe like Ruth might have been in some way like imperiled by this move and in that Mm -hmm. like people kind of know i mean it may not be a very like there is a station for moabites from moab yeah in israelite society although maybe not a very good one but people kind of know how to deal with that but her being sort of elevated to now she's part of an israelite household might put her at risk in a different kind of yeah you're right i mean that I feel like that kind, that sense of threat that people part of the, who are part of the dominant culture f- feel when a quote unquote outsider comes in and is able to move through the social ladder, I guess is how I would describe it. Yeah, is really real. But the people come back with this really kind of amazing response: "We are your witnesses, and may the Lord make your Moabite wife like Rachel and Leah." And like Tamar. Talk to me a little bit about the comparison of Ruth to those particular Rachel, Leah, Tamar. Well, Rachel and Leah are part of the matriarchs of Israel. Yeah. So to be compared to the matriarchs of like the founders of the community is that's quite a quite a blessing to to ask. Tamar and Judah is an interesting one because that's another situation where there was Tamar's was married to Judah's son mm-hmm. and he died. Mm-hmm. And I won't tell the whole story here, but sort of long story short, Judah would not continue to give his sons to Tamar to marry. And so she was not able to conceive a child. And she was really concerned about this, you know, because the sort of, again, the question of lineage and, and continuity of generations. And so eventually she tricked Judah, her father-in-law, into sleeping with her so she would get pregnant in order to continue this lineage, which again is seen as a righteous act, even though it's a little weird. And Judah in the end says like, you were, you were in the right. So it's just an interesting comparison, like the ways that Tamar and Ruth, and in some ways, Lot's daughters have to work within this weird, I would say weird (laughs) sort of system that they're in, but are really sort of keep your eyes on the prize we need descendants, and they get the job done. I think that's right. And you're you're thinking about Genesis 38 there, the story of yeah, Judah and yeah. Tamar. And the evidence, uh, people argue about this, but one, I think, a reasonable reading of that text is that Tamar is not an Israelite either. She's a Canaanite. And mm. if that's true, then by invoking Tamar, then you have another foreign woman who's integrated into the family line of Israel and and so Ruth now Ruth and Tamar are both immigrants who have carried on the family lines of Israel. Yeah. And then picking up in verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. He was intimate with her. The Lord let her become pregnant and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, "May the Lord be blessed who today hasn't left you without a redeemer. May his name be proclaimed in Israel. He will restore your life and sustain you in your old age." 
Your daughter-in-law who loves you has given birth to him. She's better for you than seven sons. Naomi took the child and held him to her breast, and she became his guardian. The neighborhood women gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They called his name Obed. He became Jesse's father and David's grandfather. So for the first time there, we get the name David. If you keep on going in, in 18 to 22, the whole book repeats the lineage and again ends with the word David. So mm-hmm. suddenly, Ruth's presence in the genealogy of David seems to become a focal point of the book right at the very end. I mean, that David is like the ultimate name drop. Yeah. You know, right? I mean, David was their, <laughs> the first good king. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, and and there's the belief that the the next good king, the, you know, Messiah in the Jewish sense of the word, at least, or maybe in the Christian sense of the word also, will come from the lineage of David. Right. So, like, this strand that's been started here is what it all comes down to. Yeah. Right. There's no there's no higher stakes than that. And so unless you had kind of a deep knowledge of the genealogy of David, this whole time we've just been thinking, oh, there's this Elimelech guy and this is mm-hmm. about his family line. But mm-hmm. then right at the end, then we're like, oh, my gosh, like the line of Elimelech is like we've really been talking about the line of David. Yeah. And if you think all the way back to I mean, Naomi had kind of given up in chapter at the end of chapter one, beginning of chapter two. You know, if Naomi had been successful in sending Ruth back home, mm-hmm. then David never, never would have been. You know, this kind of leads us kind of naturally toward our closing conversation about, so, so what do we do with this text in our own time? So let me just ask you that question as we're coming to the end of our discussion of this part of Ruth, and we're thinking about what, like, what do we do with this as modern people? Where is your head going? I think it is so interesting to think about this text in the historical context that you started with. Yeah. Where they're, you know, they were they were coming back from exile, you know, obviously when the Israelites were in exile, they were surrounded by all kinds of different peoples and created all kinds of new relationships. And when they came back to the land, all of a sudden there was this striving for like, you know, quote unquote purity. Yeah. And a sense that some kind of I guess I would say ethnic purity is what's going to make God look favorably upon us and, you know, maybe bring this uh, messianic figure that's going to save us from any kind of, you know, ongoing suffering. Yeah. And having this story land on David at the end, I feel like, is a direct contradiction to that. Yeah. You know, is saying that without, if we, if we're going for this quote unquote purity, then we never would have had the first you know, anointed one. Like we never would have had David in the first place. We wouldn't have the whole line of David and there's no possibility for another Messiah if if you're pushing that purity angle. Now, I love that. And to me, that's, yeah, the connection of this text to Ezra Nehemiah and the connection of Ezra Nehemiah to our own cultural context in which there is a lot of anxiety, I mean, both in the US, but also around the world. You know, there's this kind of sense of like nationalism or scapegoating yeah. foreigners and immigrants and minorities uh, in terms of what, why is society struggling? Although there's one part of our culture and a, and a strong one that says, well, it's because of immigrants and minorities, immigrants, foreigners and minorities. Mm-hmm. And so we need to like close the borders or we need to like send people back where they came from or we need to whatever the case 
might be. And you can see that connection between our cultural moment, I think, and Ezra, Ezra Nehemiah's moment. And when the book of Ruth, if you set it within the context of Ezra Nehemiah and their fear of foreigners, it's exactly what you're saying. It lands on David. And what it's then saying is something like, we don't need to get rid of foreigners in order to make Israel great again, right? Mm -hmm. Because the only reason Israel was ever great in the first place is because these foreign women, Ruth, and then in the very end, we, uh, Tamar, like these were foundational figures. Like Israel only ever became Israel because of the, con the contributions, important contributions of these, these two and presumably other immigrants and foreigners. Yeah, no, I think that parallel to to our society today is really, really apt. And I think you said that really well. Now, one of the things that we've noted along the way is that in trying to make that case, which in my mind is kind of a, in our modern culture is like a white liberal case, <laughs> right? Like immigrants are great, which the book of Ruth has said, Ruth is deferential. She's polite. She's hardworking. She doesn't try to rise above her status. Like, it's created this model minority that is palatable. And one of the things that we've kind of pointed to along the way is, okay, yes, but that does a lot of damage to Ruth, the Moabite from Moab, who has to conform her own cultural identity to the expectation of the cultural majority. She has to mm -hmm. become the best Israelite she can be uh, giving up some of her Moabite identity in order to fit into this culture. And so there's a whole critique of this book that one can also do, which then leads mm -hmm. into a critique, I think, of the way that white liberals often think about the role of immigrants, minorities, and foreigners in our own time. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that's going to be where we head next week on the podcast. Mm -hmm. So next week on the podcast, we'll be in Ruth 1, 14 to 18, and then 3, 1 to 15. Good, good. Well, I look forward to it, and I hope you have a great week. Thanks. You too. I'll see you next time. Okay. Bye. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Bible Worm. Next week, we continue our discussion of Ruth with a look at chapters 1, 14 to 18, and 3, 1 to 15. We hope you'll join us. Until then, keep on digging.